Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. This week, Bandcamp bought by Fortnite maker Epic Games. Welcome to Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. I'm Andy Malt. With me is Chris Cook. Hello, Chris. Hello there. As ever, we are going to be taking a look back at some of the biggest and most interesting music industry news stories of the last week. A week when musicians and the music business have been responding to events in Ukraine. Events which uh, kind of make everything else seem pretty unimportant in comparison. That said, with things changing so rapidly, we decided that it wasn't something we should focus on in detail in this episode. But anybody who wants reliable information on how they can support Ukraine, the country's music export office has put together a really useful list, which we will link to from the show notes. Yes, numerous artists who had shows scheduled in Russia have cancelled them in protest at the war. Meanwhile, live music companies like Live Nation and Oakview Group have made statements to the effect that they will not work in Russia or with Russian companies. Meanwhile, earlier in the week, representatives of the Ukrainian music industry requested that streaming services allow artists to post political statements on their artwork to those streaming services platforms so that they can communicate to their fans in Russia what is actually happening on the ground in Ukraine, which is obviously different to what the Russian government is currently claiming. They also pointed out that a grievance for a number of years now, as political tensions have been building between Russia and Ukraine, has been that Ukrainian artists dealing with companies like Spotify have often had to do so through those streaming firms' Russian offices, usually in Moscow, when they would understandably prefer to be dealing with another office, for example, maybe in Poland. That said, for now, Spotify has actually announced that it is closing its Russian office indefinitely, and we would suspect other digital companies would probably follow likewise in the days ahead. Yeah, Spotify will actually still be accessible within Russia because the company said it felt it had a responsibility to get international news into the country, but it has committed to remove all content created by the Russian government, mainly via its RT and Sputnik news and media services. Apple has likewise removed Sputnik and RT content and apps from its platforms. And as we record this, other music and digital companies are making similar statements regarding their activities in Russia and with Russian companies. Yeah, so we've been covering these stories in more detail in the CMU Daily and we'll continue to do so. So do keep an eye on that for further updates. But now let's get on with this week's edition of Setlist. Yes, later on, we'll be discussing the Entertainment Retailers Association's stats on UK music streaming in 2021. But first, the maker of the Fortnite video game, Epic Games, has bought the director fan music platform Bandcamp, leading to the obvious question, what does a video game platform want with a director fan music platform? Yes, this is a very interesting purchase on Epic's part. Not actually its first move into music, because late last year it bought a company called Harmonix, which is a gaming company, so that makes more sense for Epic Games to be buying it, but a gaming company mainly known for the games it makes, which are kind of music games. So it was the company originally behind the Guitar Hero franchise and then subsequently the Rock Band franchise. So that made a little bit more sense, whereas this, obviously, a full-on move into the music space by Epic. We will talk more in a moment about what might be going on and why they might have been interested in buying Bandcamp. But first... The acquisition was announced 
via a blog post on the Bandcamp blog written by the company's co-founder, Ethan Diamond. And what I thought was interesting about the blog post was beyond saying we've been bought and it's brilliant, which is what you would expect. I don't know, you sort of realised, which I'm sure he did because they are savvy people over at Bandcamp. I think they realised that Bandcamp has always kind of positioned itself and certainly been seen within the music community and particularly the independent artist community as kind of being the least corporate of the various digital music platforms that are out there and not owned by big business, not operating with a strategy of we're going to raise billions of dollars from the city and then take over the world. It was a little bit more organic. I mean, it did have some traditional investment behind it, it has to be said, but it was more of a sort of organic, independent, artist-friendly platform. And you sort of sense that in his blog post, Ethan Diamond realised that he needs to deal with that and explain why this isn't a sellout to a big corporation. It's a strategic partnership, which will allow Bandcamp to continue doing what it does, but do it better. Yes, so Ethan Diamond started his blog post by saying, I'm excited to announce that Bandcamp is joining Epic Games, who you may know as the makers of Fortnite and Unreal Engine and champions for a fair and open internet. Bandcamp will keep operating as a standalone marketplace and music community, and I will continue to lead our team. The products and services you depend on aren't going anywhere, and we'll continue to build Bandcamp around our artist-first revenue model, where artists net an average of 82% of every sale. Yeah, he was also keen to stress that any artists or independent labels who use the Bandcamp platform, how they use the service won't be changing. Also, popular initiatives like the Bandcamp Friday thing that they launched early on in the pandemic, which is where a day a month they don't charge any commission. And those artists who are particularly active on Bandcamp and their fans have, have liked and enjoyed that initiative. That's not going anywhere, he said. Also, Bandcamp has always had a really interesting editorial side to what they do, where they've got a team of people who champion new artists and new music that's available on the platform. And that is staying too, he was keen to stress. So, well, so much is it business as usual at Bandcamp, despite this big acquisition. You might be thinking, well, hang on, what are they going to do with all of the money and infrastructure and power that will come to them as a subsidiary of Epic Games? Yes. And thankfully, he did mention that as well. He said, behind the scenes, we're working with Epic to expand internationally and push development forward across Bandcamp. From basics like our album pages, mobile apps, merch tools, payment system and search and discovery features to newer initiatives like our vinyl pressing and live streaming services. Yeah, it was quite interesting. As this acquisition was announced, lots of people in my social feeds who are Bandcamp fans, either because they're artists who have had some success on Bandcamp, or they are music fans who like to go to Bandcamp in order to support artists by buying stuff directly. There was, well, I was going to say a mixed response. That said, I think probably there was more negativity and or concern about the announcement <laughs> than there was positivity. Although there were a couple of people saying, we love Bandcamp. That said, there have been a few things that are a little bit frustrating about how Bandcamp works and the Bandcamp backend. And maybe with all this epic money, they'll be able to fix those things and it will all be glorious. But as I said, what is interesting here 
is that Bandcamp has often been seen as being the more artist-friendly digital platform and has traditionally had a lot of vocal supporters, particularly within the independent artist community. Artists who are often more prone to be critical of the big streaming platforms, particularly Spotify. And so during the whole economics of streaming debate that we've seen, particularly throughout the pandemic over the last couple of years, where services like Spotify have come in for a lot of criticism, and part of that narrative has often been, oh, Bandcamp is so much more artist-friendly than Spotify. Spotify, and you know, sometimes people would talk about all the subscription streaming services. They're set up for the benefit of the majors and the big catalogue owners. It's impossible for independent artists to make any traction and make any money from Spotify, is what these people would say. I'm not saying I 100% agree with that, but that is a common narrative. And often, immediately after saying all of that, people would say, ah, but Bandcamp, that's a platform that's got it right. That's a platform that supports independent artists. Hence why there was a bit of pushback towards a much more corporate-looking entity buying Bandcamp. Also, Epic Games is 40% owned by that Chinese web giant we've talked about quite a lot on Setlist over the years. Good old Tencent, biggest player in digital music within China, also has shares in Universal Music, a few shares in Warner Music, has a stake in Spotify. So a company with its fingers in lots of pies, another corporate entity. So a bit of pushback about it becoming part of a corporate group, which, as I say, in the blog post from Ethan Diamond, he was clearly anticipating that and trying to set out the deal in a way that made it feel like it was not going to be so impactful on what Bandcamp is. All of that said, I do think that while Bandcamp has done a good job over the years in terms of its brand as presenting itself as being a more artist-friendly service with the editorial staff, things like Bandcamp Friday, but also you know being a company which wasn't so driven by massive global growth really quickly, which then puts you into a scale game, which means you end up with a Spotify-style business model, which tends to skew to the more corporate end of the business. Although, I think the reason why a lot of independent artists like Bandcamp and talk up Bandcamp so much is less to do with the Bandcamp brand and the Bandcamp ethos. It's more to do with the business model. And I've always said, people sometimes talk about Spotify and Bandcamp as if they're somehow competitors, rivals. And Spotify is evil, so therefore you should go to their competitor, Bandcamp, who are not. But I would argue that they're not competitors. Subscription streaming of the Spotify model is fundamentally different to the direct-to-fan model that Bandcamp has been a pioneer in. And if you are an independent artist with a smaller fan base, it's a simple fact that the subscription streaming model is not going to be as useful for you because subscription streaming really works for people who are getting millions of streams a month, which means either... As an artist, you have a sizable fan base, or as a label, you have a sizable catalogue. Whereas with director fam, you can actually make decent money, I mean, not millions, but decent money with a much smaller but very loyal fan base. And as I say, that's not because Spotify is evil and Bandcamp is great. It's just they're two fundamentally different businesses. But for most artists... They're actually complementary revenue streams. There are plenty of artists who do make you know, all right money from Spotify. I mean, not 
masses of money, but they're getting some money in from their streams on Spotify. But they're also getting decent money by selling merchandise or CD and vinyl or downloads and memberships through Bandcamp. And frequently, the people who are spending money with them on Bandcamp are also spending money on a Spotify subscription every month. So are putting in money into the system both ways. So my point is that Bandcamp is a totally different kind of business to Spotify. From an artist's perspective, they're both valuable revenue streams. But I would say, and I think this is what makes Epic's acquisition of Bandcamp interesting, I would say, and have been saying for a while, it really feels like the direct-to-fan side of the business, which has never exploded quite in the way I thought it would over the last 10 years, is really starting to evolve and change and will become an ever more important part of the wider digital music business in the years ahead, which is very likely why Epic wanted to buy it. Yes, because while the subscription streaming business model was responsible for the record industry's revival and is still powering most of the sector's continued growth, it does feel like the director-fan side of the digital business is set to surge in the years ahead. And a lot of that is because DirectFan is becoming increasingly digital. And obviously, DirectFan was always digital in that you know, transactions occurred over digital platforms. But often what the fan was buying was a physical product like you know, a piece of vinyl or a ticket. However, there is increasingly an appetite among particularly core fans of some artists to spend more money on digital content and experiences, whether that's through memberships or donations or some sort of digital gifting, live streams or digital collectibles within gaming platforms or metaverses or to fulfil all of the buzzwords, NFTs on the blockchain. And that's a big opportunity for various people within all this. So a savvy artist with a loyal fan base can capitalise on this. Platforms that are able to facilitate those direct-to-fan transactions like Bandcamp uh, you know, have big opportunities here. And also gaming companies like Epic Games who have ever greater ambitions in the metaverse and are building products around that, which is why the Epic Bandcamp deal is so interesting. Now, of course, one of the challenges for anybody and everyone trying to pursue all of these new digital-based direct-to-fan opportunities, selling to superfans digital products and digital experiences, is if the fan is buying that digital content or access to those digital experiences through their smartphones, through an app, which in many, many cases they probably are, we hit against that big problem that we've talked about before on Setlist, which is Apple and Google are going to want a commission on that sale. And of course, the reason why, or one of the reasons why we've talked about this before on Setlist is that among the companies who have been taking on Google, but especially Apple, over what they would call the Apple tax, the fact that Apple wants to charge a 30% commission on any in-app transactions on iOS devices. The company that's been doing a lot to try and fight that by basically arguing that it's anti-competitive conduct and the law should intervene are, of course, Epic Games, which is currently suing Apple in multiple countries, but the, the big case was in the US, trying to argue that as an app maker, you should be allowed to take transactions through your own 
platforms rather than through the Apple Transactions platform so that you can circumvent the 30% commission. Epic are not alone in calling for that change. Spotify also want that change, although they've gone more the political route, complaining to the European Commission that Apple is being anti-competitive, whereas Epic has been going through the courts. But it was always the case that if Epic is successful in trying to get Apple to rewrite its rules so that you no longer have to take in-app transactions through Apple's platform and pay them the 30%. If they are successful, now at the moment, they're having, I would say, mixed success, although it's not just Epic, it's not just Spotify, other people are complaining around the world, other regulators are intervening. Things are slowly shifting in the right direction, albeit very slowly. But if the Epics and Spotify's of this world can force Apple and Google to change their policies regarding in-app transactions so we no longer have to pay Apple and Google that 30%, well, that will help anybody, any artist or music company trying to capitalise on these new direct-to-fan opportunities where the opportunity happens through an app on a phone, which means that the direct-to-fan part of the music industry will be a winner if Epic et al. are successful in this domain. And of course, now, Epic have a direct vested interest in that side as well as the new owners of Bandcamp. So another level on which Epic's purchase of Bandcamp is interesting. Yes, so it'll be interesting to see how this partnership develops over time. But obviously, at the moment, Bandcamp is very much assuring everyone it's business as usual. And finally, on this edition of Setlist, last week, the UK's Entertainment Retailers Association published its annual yearbook full of stats, many of them about how great everything was for subscription streaming last year, despite the pandemic. Although ERA boss Kim Bailey did acknowledge the ongoing debate around the economics of music streaming, saying that the wider industry should be bold in addressing concerns that have been expressed about how the digital pie is being sliced up within the music community and tackling ongoing issues around data and transparency. Yeah, because of course, a theme throughout the pandemic has been that while the live side of the business has gone through a terrible time with a catastrophic impact on its revenues as a result of COVID and the lockdowns, etc. And I mean, we talked a little bit about Live Nation's most recent financial figures last week on Setlist. And I mean, although those were not all doom and gloom by any means, and there was some positive stuff in there, I mean, the summary of Live Nation's most recent upbeat, positive, optimistic financial statement that came out last month was it wasn't quite as bad as we were worrying and expecting. <laughs> Whereas on the recorded music side and the streaming side, throughout the pandemic, it has never been, oh, the downside of the pandemic was not as bad as affected. I mean, obviously, with a bit of high street retail, it was impacted by the pandemic, and that would also come under the figures published by the Entertainment Retail Association. But when it comes to streaming, which is where a lot of these stats are related, throughout the pandemic, it's all been growth, 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 not affected by COVID at all. Unless, of course, you want to argue, which you could, that COVID actually helped the subscription streaming services. Because if everyone locked down and confined to their homes, maybe more people were prone to start paying 
to access home entertainment services like having a Spotify subscription or an Apple Music or Amazon Music subscription. So yes, lots of positive stats have been coming out on the recorded music side and the streaming side throughout the pandemic, including in the new yearbook that looks back at the UK home entertainment market in 2021. But of course, that has motivated the whole economics of streaming debate Certainly here in the UK, where you've got those artists and songwriters who, for various reasons, see a relatively small share of the streaming revenue stream and so have started to question how streaming works. So, yeah, it was interesting that Kim Bailey in the Era Yearbook was countering all of the positive stats that were in that document by saying, but we acknowledge that there are issues with the way streaming works. Although it has to be said, and I mean, to be fair, the UK Parliament's report on streaming done by the Culture Select Committee kind of reached this conclusion too, but it was very much in a opinion piece that Kim wrote alongside the yearbook. The narrative was, although there are issues with the way streaming works, there are mainly issues to be addressed by record companies and music publishers and collecting societies by the music industry and not by the streaming services that make up ERA's membership. No. Now, we already knew the top line figures for the wider UK home entertainment market in 2021 because, helpfully, ERA published them right at the beginning of the year. Music, video and gaming combined reached record revenues of over £9.7 billion. Music services and retailers brought in £1.67 billion in total, which was an 8.7% increase on 2020. The new yearbook drills down even further into that, telling us that of the monies that came in via the music services and retailers in 2021 in the UK, 80% was from streaming services, 9% from CD sales, 8% from vinyl sales, and 3% from downloads. And when it comes to streaming, 79% of revenues came from selling subscriptions, with 21% from the ad-funded services. And if you take the video platforms like YouTube out of the mix completely, it's 86% subscriptions and 14% ad money. As well as the financial data, the new yearbook also has stats from ERA's consumer research. Asked what the top feature of a music streaming service was, 55% of those surveyed identified having unlimited access to such a vast catalogue of music. And when asked about the playlists on the platforms, 40% said that they were an important or very important part of the experience. Honing in on the whole economics of music streaming debate, as I said, Kim Bailey put out a little opinion piece alongside the new yearbook. And before she got into identifying some of the issues and who should solve those issues, keen to stress, unsurprisingly, that the premium streaming business model pioneered by the likes of Spotify is what took the wider recorded music business back into growth around 2015 after 15 years of decline. And while Spotify critics in the music community quite often hone in on the massive valuation of Spotify, the market capitalization, now that it's listed on the New York Stock Exchange, has to be said that Spotify's market cap has been going down quite a lot recently because the share price has been uh, sliding for a while now. But I mean, still, even with the recent declines in the share price, Spotify's valuation is still huge. And people often hone in on that 
when they're criticizing Spotify and going with the whole, oh, Spotify built this you know, multi-billion dollar business on the back of all the music that artists and songwriters created. And of course, it is true that the founders of Spotify, the early investors in Spotify, cashed in big time, certainly once Spotify was listed on the New York Stock Exchange. But countering all of that or counterbalancing it, I guess, Kim Bailey wrote in this piece that it's also worth noting that the valuations of the major music companies, particularly Universal Music and Warner Music, now that they are separately listed on stock exchanges, have all been exploding. Universal had its incredibly successful IPO on the Dutch Stock Exchange last year, on the back of which Universal Music boss Lucien Grange got that massive, ridiculously high bonus she also noted all of those megabucks deals involving heritage artists selling off their catalogues because music rights are valuable again. Why? Because the income from music rights keeps going up. Why? Because of streaming. So basically saying, okay, maybe, I mean, Kim didn't specifically say this in her piece, but maybe Spotify's early investors have cashed in big time. But the music industry has also cashed in big time or parts of the music industry has cashed in big time on the back of the streaming boom. And of course, the major record companies' profits keep going up as the streaming boom continues. Meanwhile, most streaming services aren't really making particularly big profits if they're making any profits at all. Yes, so Kim Bailey said, streaming has delivered billions in IPOs for shareholders of music companies and it has delivered hundreds of millions of pounds to artists like Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan and others who have seen the value of their music explode. It has also ensured that more artists can earn money from their recordings than ever before and it has delivered incredible benefit to music fans. But that doesn't mean there aren't issues to be addressed regarding the streaming business. Though, as we mentioned, Bailey says that those are mainly issues within the music industry itself, which means in the main, labels, publishers and collecting societies need to provide the solutions. Yeah, there were three specific issues and possible solutions that she talked about in her piece. First of all, the big debate about how the money gets split between the song rights and the recording rights. So of the 65 to 70% of streaming revenues handed over to the music industry, how it gets shared out between the rights, between artists and labels and songwriters and publishers. With that, the streaming services have always been keen to stress they don't care, <laughs> providing their margin isn't affected. And uh, Kim Bailey wrote in her piece, there is nothing God-given about the division of income between the recording and the song or how the money flows through the value chain. However comforting it may be to stick with the status quo, it is not beyond improvement. She also said that data and transparency issues need to be tackled by the industry as well, saying there are still significant flaws in the data supplied to streaming services. We need to address them. We need more transparency so we can go beyond asserting streaming is fair to demonstrate it. As for the third issue slash debate slash solution that she mentioned, basically user centric the way the monies get split across the catalogue each month, the way monies are allocated to each individual track. We've talked about the proposal that the current system should be replaced with a so-called user-centric system many times on Setlist. And what she had to say about that, this being one area where, well, if things are going to change, the streaming services definitely have to be part of that. This isn't something that can be completely pushed back on the labels and the publishers, although the labels and the publishers would have to buy into it. 
But she said, oh, when it comes to things like that, we need to move on from saying we are open-minded about user-centric licensing to actually doing the homework on what its impact would be. Yes, she concluded, streaming services have done and continue to do a magnificent job in growing the music market. Let's now ensure that the fruits of their innovation and investment are applied in a way which best measures the long-term success of the entire music ecosystem. So some bold ambitions being stated in Kim Bailey's opinion piece there. But if you're interested in nerdy stats more than bold ambition, (laughs) the yearbook is free to download from ERA's website. I'm sure we'll put a link in the podcast notes. And uh, yeah, lots of interesting stats and charts in there about music, about music discovery. And of course, because ERA isn't just music, also about trends in gaming and video on demand and DVDs, if that is something that interests you. But that's all we've got time for on this edition of Setlist. As Chris says, there'll be various links to all the things we've discussed in this edition of the podcast. So if you go to setlistpodcast.com or in your podcast player right now, you will find the show notes with all those links there. Don't forget to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. You can rate and review it too. That's so much fun. Uh, And if you want to discuss anything that we've talked about this week or any other week, you can email us setlist at unlimitedmedia.co.uk. Setlist is the music business podcast from CMU. It's presented by Andy Moulton, Chris Cook. And for more on CMU, go to completemusicupdate.com. (laughs) 